Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome back to Engendered and Happy New Year. We kick off our year with a series of episodes on survivors and their healing journey. On today's show, our guest is Maria Santiago, a survivor of childhood domestic violence or family violence, a protective parent, and a decades-long advocate for survivors of intimate partner violence. Maria is currently employed as a violence prevention educator in a New York City nonprofit organization and works on elder justice reform in the Latino community, as well as on behalf of victims in the immigrant community. Maria is also recognized for her role as a founding member of New York City's Voices of Women organizing project and for her capacity building trainings to the New York City Administration for Children's Services and to their contracted preventive agencies. Maria brings to us a perspective of how advocacy can be a vital part of the survivor's journey towards healing. So thank you for joining us on this show and talking about your very um, rich life experience as a survivor and as an advocate. I'd like to get started with your history as a child witness of domestic violence, what we call family violence. Can you talk about that? Sure, I'll talk about that. It was a long time ago. Um, uh, growing up, I, I grew up in a household with an abusive father who was and could be very violent uh, physically, verbally, emotionally. But I, I, I think it's important that I also mention that my father was an excellent provider. Uh, we wanted for nothing in, in terms of our immediate needs. Um, but yes, he was very um, controlling, uh, very loud, and it was either his way or the highway in my household. How, how did that experience shape your childhood growing up? Were there certain feelings that you remember carrying with you? Well, you know, I, I, I do remember being very scared, but in terms of children and and children who witnessed domestic violence, I would have to say that I was the child that would intervene. I would be the child that would try to protect my my mother. And um now when I look back on it, I really put myself at, at great risk at that time. But, you know, children respond differently. Some hide, uh, someone um, stare, uh, look at the, at the abuse, um, and are traumatized that way. But I was the child that would, would, would intervene and would try to stop it or try to call the police. Have, had you ever called the police? I never made it quite to the door. Uh, because my father would, would chase after me. But now, again, uh, as I look back at it, that intervention, if you will, uh, I think helped in terms of my mom's safety because I think that my father, at least in that moment, was able to stop uh, himself to a certain degree. Was your father violent 
only towards your mother or also towards the kids? Well, there was a there was corporal punishment. Um, uh, I, I was so terrified of my father that all it would take was a look. He didn't have to say much. Um, and, and, and I have vivid, vivid re- memories of my father. You know, growing up, um, we, uh, as a Latina, we, we, we eat this thing called penin, which is uh, roast pork. And my father had a special knife that would really would cut into the pork without much effort. But that was always the weapon that my father would also use to threaten my mother. And, and it was always visible. And, and, and so, you know, you really don't need much in, in terms of uh, putting fear into a family um, in, uh, in that way. That's very consistent with what a lot of the other advocates and survivors we've spoken with have shared, which is that um, Evan Stark, who talks about coercive control, he basically puts forth the notion that once fear and intimidation is there, you don't need physical violence to control. Correct. Correct. And I always say it only takes once. Yeah. It's believed that um, many incidents of violence happen uh, on the honeymoon, in the honeymoon, on the honeymoon night. Well, you know what? It only takes one time, one good sock in the face to really let you know this is the way it's going to go. I, I do want to loop back, though, Maria, and and um, address the, I guess, the disclaimer that you used to describe your father. You said, you know, he was X, Y, Z, all these different things, but he was still a good provider. So why did you bring that in? What what made you feel like you needed to sort of, you know, add that to his legacy? Right. Um, thank you. That's a that's a great question, because that is often uh, the story of many women that I talk to, in order to justify and minimize and excuse the behavior of someone that they love. And I, and I was no different. And, and it's to be a nonviolent, conscious person is more than just providing food and shelter to a family. So that's great that you're saying that because I was actually very confused when I heard that. It sounded like you were trying to give an excuse for his behavior where he was this, but he was also still able to provide. So you were saying that just... Right, to, to raise awareness. Okay. And be, because I know that many women stay longer than they should because of those reasons and make excuses. Well, he doesn't batter my children. But, you know, I say a good father is a father who does not abuse the mother. I agree with that. And so what were the consequences of being a witness to domestic violence on you and your development? Well, for one, there was an early divorce. And divorce can be very uh, hard on children as well. Uh, My mother was a hardworking woman who was not home a lot. I was what you call today a latchkey kid. Not much supervision. I did, uh, I, I did have an older sister who, who tried her best to be, fill in my mom's 
role, but we were left alone a lot. And as a result, I, I, I really, really and strongly believe that the fact that I had a child and was pregnant by 16 was because of my poor idea of what it is to be a young lady, a, a, a girl, safety, what, what really matters. I didn't have parents who paid attention to my education. I remember, I remember my, the only one time my father came to school was because I had gotten a really special uh, scholarship uh, at, at a private school because I had this talent where I could sing. I was good at it. And that was the first time that my father showed up at school. And uh, other than that, there was not a lot of support in terms of my education. Uh, schools were already deficit and not really uh, doing as good a job as, as they should have been doing. And I was very behind. And um, so uh, the attention of uh, the smartest boy in the class um, really meant a lot to me. I, I felt special. When your mother and your father divorced, I presume she had to go to work? She was working already? Oh, yeah. She, she always worked. As a matter of fact, that was one of, the, one of the reasons my mother was battered. I always say my mother was very progressive. My mother smoked cigarettes, and, and she bought her own car and was driving when that was not the norm for women. And uh, she was very, she was very progressive um, in the for her in the 1950s, and I think that that was, that played a very uh, uh, significant role or part as to why my father abused her. She worked when women were not working, so he was threatened, or potentially he felt that that was a an act of betrayal, or well, the fact that she could sustain herself if she had to. The fact that she was around men, that the factory were consisted of men, that she was attractive, that she was young, that she was beautiful and going to work every day was a threat. And what was your mother's perspective on her relationship with your father? Did she have an awareness that she was being victimized by him and that his behavior was harmful to her kids? I don't think so. I, I, I really don't think so. Okay. And so all of that contributed to you being a teen mom, like you said, to seek attention. What happened as a teen mom? Were you able to stay and get your mother's support? Or did you have to move out and drop out of school? How did that Well, what happened out? then, uh, again, that's a really good question. In those days, and because of my uh, tradition and my culture, if you got pregnant, you got married. And so my father calmly put his shoes on, said, we're going to your father's, the father of your child's house. And literally my mother and father dropped me off at his house. And, I, and it, was, it was months, maybe even years before I saw my mother and my father again. Where was this? In New York this City? This was in New York City. And in the Bronx. What year approximately was this? Um, wow, it's been so long. But but j just to give you an idea, my daughter is now 46. And uh, if I haven't missed a year or two, so <laughs> she's like, 46. So it's now. in the mid 60s. Yeah. And yeah. was that typical for families to do that? 
Well, at least in my culture. Uh-huh. If if you impregnated someone's daughter, I think you call it a shotgun wedding. Uh-huh. You married the person that you impregnated. And then you became the responsibility of that person. How did that go? Did the not your well. boyfriend's not, parents not, not accept well at you? All. Not well at all. Not well at all. Because the the father of my child, may he rest in peace, was a heroin addict. And so they literally dropped me off in the house and to a man who was addicted to heroin at 16, 17 years old. How did you survive when your daughter was born? The good thing, uh, if you will, the, posit- the positive uh, uh, piece in, in, in all of that was that uh, my daughter's father had a, an amazing mother. Uh, and I, I don't know if it was because she she only had that one son and was so happy that I was having a baby and a girl at that, that she stepped in and gave me a roof over my head. And I think the fact that we shared the same apartment and he didn't want his mother to know that he was a heroin addict contributed to certain to a certain degree to my safety because he was gone most of the day and I was home. And, and, and may she also rest in peace. She really, really loved my daughter, my baby. And I think that because of her support, I was able to survive. Did you continue with your school or did you have to drop out? I did. I had to drop out again in those days. I, I, I think there may have been one school for teens who were pregnant. Now that's totally changed. You go to high schools and girls go to school during their entire term. But when I was pregnant, that wasn't accessible. Mm -hmm. So did you ever resume your education? I did. How did that? I did later on. Um, That's a really, uh, again, I I really like uh, what you're bringing up because I think it's important. I always felt that I was stupid and couldn't achieve anything. And, you know, sometimes anger can be a good thing. And I would get upset when I would see, because, you know, I, I was hanging out a lot. I was hanging out and I would see well-dressed young ladies going to their bank jobs. And I was on the corner uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do for that day and what I was going to get high on that day. But a certain something in me told me I want that. And were it not for the wonderful person that came into my life, I wish I could find him now. I called an organization called Aspira. And the counselor on that phone and on that interview that day, may, God, may, may he have peace wherever he is, convinced me that I was not dumb enough that I could go to college and found the perfect college for me, which at the time was Malcolm King College, where you could go to school, work towards your GED, and attend a college course at the same time. It changed my life. And amazingly enough, the first course I took was Psychology 101. 
How did Psychology 101 affect you? Well, because Psychology 101 really taught me how the brain works and that we, we learn differently. And, and Malcolm King College awarded me the curriculum, which was non-traditional, that included my life experience. And you could, you could achieve credits based on your life experience as well towards your degree which was perfect for me. And it really ignited a, a passion for learning. Now, math was always challenging. It still is. But I, I found a way to also overcome math, if you will. So how was the rest of your experience as a young mother? What were some of the challenges that you faced? Well, some of, some of the challenges that I faced was providing for my children. But you know, there's this wonderful thing called purpose and resilience that I recognize I had. I, 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 you know, so I encourage anyone, any of the listeners to really explore their purpose. Because once you do that, passion kicks in and compassion kicks in. And so I learned that early on. Um, and what was your purpose that you identified? My, my purpose was really to be of service in my community. It wasn't very clear, but I knew that I wanted to help people. And I also knew that I wanted to stay in my community and do that. And at some point, did you and your boyfriend separate? We did. I exposed him. Um, I, I, I let everyone know. Um, and I think that that was, that was, that was it for him. And I went on to um, find my own place. And I, again, to the listeners, I am one, I'm almost certain, of the first welfare recipients to obtain a college degree while on welfare. You didn't have stipulations or restrictions like you have now, if you are on public assistance and you want to obtain your degree, they have you live off of, off of those grants. When I went back to school, you could do college work study. You could obtain a degree and still collect food stamps. And at some point you met another man? I met many. (laughs) (laughs) That you married? I met, you know, I, the only one time I was legally married was during my teen years, which was to my daughter's father. Uh, But of course I had years of promiscuity. And what do you attribute that to? I think um, I I really was out there. I really... Uh, didn't have any direction. I didn't. I I, I define myself uh, through the through the men that I could uh, bed. Um, your value was in value. your attraction and de- and the ability to attract and be be found desirable by men. Right, and that was enough at that time, because I could obtain certain. Uh, uh, drugs. I could get into bars. I could get free drinks. I could, um, you know, be looked at as something of uh, not prestige, but 
someone who could get whatever man she wanted to get. So other women were envious of your your sexual power, I guess. Well, either envious or, or, or critical. And I was, for lack of a better word, you know, oh, I, I just, I'm sorry. Uh, please forgive me. That's the Bronx in me. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was either that, but you know, the dressing nice and, um, and being attracted to the most powerful man in that community, meaning the biggest drug dealer, the one who had the most money, that gave you a certain level of status in the community. And at some point you had a relationship with someone who was harmful to your daughter. I did. I did. Can you talk about what happened there? Right. And I, and again, I wanna. I, ju- I just want to say that by the time that that was happening, I was at a place where I thought that I, if I was in a relationship with someone who worked for the authorities, I was safe. And that was not the case. Okay? I also didn't know a lot about this person's background. I didn't, re- I didn't understand why the sisters, the father, no one wanted anything to do with him or why I never met him. Listen up, ladies. Know who you are dating. Know who you are bringing around your children. I think that that's the biggest lesson that I learned from that relationship. But yes, that person took advantage and and mistreated my children. So did you ever try to seek help from law enforcement in dealing with that issue? I did, Terry. Um, uh, Unfortunately, uh, when my daughter uh, disclosed what was happening, the statute of limitation was up. And and how many years was that back then? Was it five years? I think it was. This was, and and, and by the way, if I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, New York City, New York State has gotten better about that. Um, But you could not prosecute if you had waited for a particular, you know, a certain amount of time. Went to the DA's office, went to my local politicians, went to the police, could not do anything. And 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 I, I want to share with you, and I want to I want to say that I took the matter into my own hands. And while I do not recommend what I did to anyone, any of the listeners out there, I have to tell you that what I did was one of the most healing things I could have ever done because it was either that, do what I did or wind up in a psychiatric ward, or worse, kill my abuser. Are you comfortable sharing what you did? I, 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 I Yes, because it's not something that I'm ashamed of. <laughs> so what I did was, I had pictures of the, first of all, I had a list of his family's addresses, friends, of most of his friends and family. I made up a flyer with his picture on it. And if I remember correctly, 
predator of children, something to that effect, unable to prosecute due to statute of limitation. Beware. And, 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 and I made up that flyer. It must have been something like 300 flyers. And Terry, I posted it from where I know he lived to the train he needed to take that morning and his community as well. And I contacted his local, his local politicians. I let them know what had happened. And for the first time, I know a lot, you know, uh, um, I, I did seek uh, 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 therapy. Uh, I did um, consider, uh, uh, and now when I look at it, I really, some people said to me, well, you know, you put yourself in danger. But, you know, a mother is, is when, a, when, when your child is taken advantage in that way, you'll either go crazy or you'll seek justice. And at that time, that was what was, was available to me. I tried everything else. I even rationalized, Terry, in my mind, how many years I would do and even how many times I was going to stab him. Do you know if it made a difference, your flyers? I know it made a difference to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that at the very least, because children who are, who are victims of child sexual abuse, sometimes are thinking, where was my mother when this happened? Why didn't my mother protect me? And you know what? They're right. They are absolutely right. And and so that was very healing. And if it brings my daughter and I closer uh, to let her know that I did not know and that if I could have taken her place those many times that that person violated our home, I would have. But we're at a good place. She's back in my life. Um, and I hope that she has completely forgiven me. Well, I think what you did was really brave and strong, and I commend you for it. A few episodes ago, I spoke with my guest, that Michael, who normally comes on for our Reflections episodes, and I referenced in that conversation how Eve Ensler, the playwright and uh, feminist activist, wrote a letter to the white women who support Judge Kavanaugh in the weeks after the Kavanaugh confirmation. And it was a very, very moving letter because... If you know Eve Ensler's story, she's very open about her sexual abuse history as a child and her father being the perpetrator. And she addressed in that letter how one of the biggest betrayals, I guess, is when her mother didn't step in to stand up for her and how it wasn't until her father passed away that her mother, in you know, decades later, came forth um, and said, I'm sorry, I had to do this for my own survival and I sacrificed you in order to survive. And and I think that's a very common story for survivors of child sexual abuse to go through where the parents of that generation, their mothers, 
because of patriarchy and their own victimization in that relationship, they're unable to to come out and stand up for their children and the harm that it does. So what you did is really amazing. And thank Thank you. Thank you. And and to add to that, Terry, I want to say to any mother or any woman out there that may be experiencing this, that taking accountability for what happened to your child does not mean, does not mean that you blame yourself. That there are bigger structures that are sometimes beyond our control and systems and situations that are beyond our control. That a sophisticated abuser will find a way to get their hands on your child. And it can happen. Listen, listen to what I'm saying. I've done hundreds of assessments of women whose children have witnessed or have been victims of domestic violence. And I can recall right now, as I sit here with you, Terry, of a man who was sexually abusing his child under the blanket while she was cooking dinner, right in the same space. He was sexually fondling a baby under the blankets while she was cooking dinner and had her her, her back turned. Okay? And so understand that. Understand the tactics and the sophisticated way in which abusive individuals determine to have the control and all of the power in a home or against another person is capable of doing and to what extent they will do that. I think for our society to be able to believe abusers, their families and loved ones, their immediate supportive communities need to believe as well. And yes. and how, how can we expect survivors to come out and share their story if their own families aren't believing them? Right. I'm also very fortunate in that I came, I, I had the amazing experience to have a year-long training with an organization, um, may I say the organization? Generation 5, who really works on transformative justice that talks about how important it is for all of community to come together to end child sexual abuse um, in 100 years. They're that strategic and that detailed. And one of the things that we did as part of the training is to have abusers, child sexual abusers, a panel, and allow us to get into the mind of a predator who will abuse their own granddaughter, let's say, for example. And how do we as a community respond to that? Because let me tell you something, incarceration and decapitating a child sexual abuser is not gonna end child sexual abuse. 
Let me just put that out there. We need to really think critically about how we are going to work with predators who, by the way, ladies and gentlemen out there, are people sometimes that we love. I think a lot of the solutions around a lot of our social problems, especially when there's violence involved, is about fixing the the manifestations of that violence. So with gun violence, we talk about gun reform, but nobody's really talking about the roots of the problem and how the violence or the desire for violence or the access and ability to exert violence and control is coming about from our society as parents, through media, through culture, et cetera. And, and so even if we were to, which we should, reform the criminal justice system, we still need to address how is it that we are all contributing to enabling the formation of people who grow up to be violent. Correct, correct. And, and, and not romanticizing violence, right? And that, that means also, parents out there, how do I discipline my child? Because you can, every, you can do something. You have control of what happens in your home. And if you are sending a message that the people that love me hurt me, we need to rethink that. That's what Bell Hook says in her book, All About Love. She talks about how children who grow up in violent homes and where parents stay together and aren't critical of that dynamic, how they internalize violence as a form of giving love. And then they grow up and accept that in their adult relationships. Spare the rod, spoil the child. So, yeah, I think that's something that, unfortunately, a lot of the people who work in our systems now, people in child welfare where you've worked, people in the court systems, law enforcement, they don't recognize or they minimize the exposure of children to domestic violence just because they're not physically harmed because they don't recognize that there are emotional and psychological consequences in the formation of that child's thoughts and behaviors that will make them potentially at greater risk of either accepting violence in their relationships or committing violence in their relationships. Right. right. You either become a perpetrator or a victim. So tell me about your journey towards healing. All of this experience happened decades ago, and you are now working (laughs) full-time as an advocate in the community uh, to end domestic violence and gender-based violence. So how did you start that journey? At what point did you actually get engaged with activism and advocacy? Well, you know, uh, I, I really, I really believe, Terry, that uh, for me, it's in my DNA, because I remember that at 19 years old, I actively took a stand and saved the life, I'll save the job, I should say, of an older person who was getting ready to lose. I, at that time, I worked at a factory, and they were laying uh, some people off. And the first person that they were going to lay off was the older person who had been there more than anyone else and didn't want to retire. And I spoke up for her and she later came on and thanked me. 
Did you and, help save that person's yeah, job? Yeah, I did. They, 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 she kept awesome. her job. And she came and she thanked me because she, she kept her job. So I knew, I knew then, and I was, again, let's go back to the child witnessing. I was the child that would intervene at whatever cost. I was going to stop it. And so that's why, I, you know, I, I, I really think that I was born to do this. I, I, I think that the word resilience is a really a spiritual gift from the higher power, resilience, that, which I happen to have in abundance. I wouldn't have survived, but I didn't. And so even when I was making poor choices, Terry, I knew what was wrong from right. And then later on, I, I, I realized that I could learn. And so to answer your question, it was really through education and awareness and purpose and defining that purpose that I realized I could make a difference. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I made the connections. And so the work and the service really filled me. It, it gave me purpose. And, and the better I got at it, the more confident I became. And so the confidence and, 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 and the work and, and the small changes that I could see were enough to encourage me to continue and learn more. And, and oddly enough, uh, Terry, I will also say that when I completely understood that what happened to me was not my fault was when I, I started to learn and understand why men batter and abuse. Can you talk about what you think the reasons are why men batter? Well, there's this thing called <laughs> there's this thing called male privilege. And there are also what I learned and it's important to be able to make the difference because when I first started doing and understanding the work uh, understanding men who batter and abuse, I really felt like I was going to change the world. <laughs> But I, I learned that dangerous cultural stereotypes need to be addressed and need to be, if you will, redefined. So what I learned was that there is an expectation that we put on men and there is an expectation that we put on women based on gender. And that that creates a lot of conflict within families and within community. That's what I, I, I learned. I learned that men don't just get up and say, oh, I'm going to go beat up Maria today because I don't have anything better to do. And I also learned that women or whomever is a victim of domestic violence does, doesn't just become a victim overnight. That there are issues and structures much bigger than that that support and make excuses, and even unfair or laws that don't really work. They're on the books, but do they really implement them, and do they really work? I would say we have a long way to go. So in your work now, you're a um, violence prevention educator, and you've been working in the Latino community, the immigrant community, for a long time, and you're also working in elder justice can you talk about what some of the challenges are that are specific to those two populations? Right. I would, I would say, again, reiterate that we are a people 
of a particular culture. That's changing a bit. But some of the issues and that I bring up, and by the way, the elders teach me a lot more than I uh, could ever teach them. And I've learned a lot about things like Marianismo, machismo. But I also want to be clear that there are very, there are a lot of beautiful things about my culture that need to be um, used in a way that we can bring the message about who we are as a Latino community and that we can make changes and not lose our culture while doing it. Can you define those two words that you used for the listeners who don't know? You said? Marianismo. Well, when I think of Marianismo, and I'm still a student and I'm I'm learning, when I think of Marianismo, I think of the tradition of our culture to marry in white with the veil over our face, to marry a virgin, to be uh, 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 of service to men, um, to take care of, uh, of that man. And those kind of traditional, uh, although I, I don't disapprove of, of, of my tradition, but I think that that traps us and is a contributing factor to why we marry, first of all. God forbid we're in our 30s and we don't marry, right? And why we rush into these marriages without really knowing what we're getting ourselves in. Although beautiful, I mean, depending on how you look at it, it can be a positive thing. And then, of course, the machismo And how do you define masculinity? And I'm not a man. I I won't even attempt to do that. There are great uh, people out there, you know, um, a call to men. There, um, uh, Connect has a wonderful um, organization. John Aponte, who taught me everything I know about um, understanding men who batter. Um, there There are men out there doing this work. And so I encourage the men Uh, to have those discussions in community, in churches, include what does it mean to be a man? But I have to take issue with your characterization that it's specific in some ways to the Latino community, because I feel like, you know, those two words that you just defined, they in so many ways are almost universally applicable. Right. I, I, I it's certainly the case in U.S. culture, American culture, that I don't know the exact number, but the trillion dollar industry of weddings, <laughs> right? And how we have all these reality TV shows right. where we are elevating the outcome of getting married over the process of getting to know someone and having a healthy relationship like The Bachelor and all these yeah. other, you know, you have... I forgot the name of the show, but where people get married without any, yeah. And so there's a strong culture behind pushing forth marriage for women as a status that I think is harmful across the world. And I totally agree. I was simply targeting what I see in the Latino community. You know, and and I, I will say this about the Latino community, and it could be across the board as well that there's this this loyalty 
to our people, right? What happens in our home stays in our house, stays in our home. Loyalty. You don't call the police on your man. You don't put your man down. You don't, you don't go next door and talk about your husband. That's, that's a cosa entre familia. That's in your family. The loyalty piece is very pronounced. At least that's what I've noticed. That's a common theme, if you will. So is that a challenge that you see as an advocate and working as a practitioner in this field that it's hard for you to convince victims that you're working with to report and to take action? I do. Uh, I, I do, but I understand it. And I think that that's really important. And now having done this work for so many years and the police and the court's response to victims of domestic violence, whenever possible, I will create safety plans that don't include those systems, whenever possible. But I will also guide and support and explain the limitations and the consequences that could occur should you decide that that's the route you want to take or have to take. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah, I think a common theme that runs throughout the podcast episodes is the lack of understanding and self-awareness that our various systems practitioners have around their own gender bias and the way in which it implicates their decisions and outcomes and the access that survivors or victims and survivors have to those systems. Thank you for mentioning that because vicarious trauma is a real thing. And I, I, you know, I just wanted to share this anecdotally. I had a a woman call me the other day who was referred by a nonprofit agency. And I speak to a lot of survivors, you know, to give them personal information uh, about the system. And she shared that she was represented by a very well-known New York City domestic violence agency, that she had an attorney through that agency. And even so... Because the attorney actually knew how different players in the system would view domestic violence claims, even if they are true, the attorney who works with this domestic violence agency advised her not to speak about her domestic violence, which she was very hesitant about because if you're not filing an order of protection right away and you need that later to justify that there was some abuse, um, you're not going to have that. A chance again. And so that's what happened to her. She didn't file an order of protection. She didn't bring up the abuse. And later on, when she brought it up, people didn't believe her. And so not to belittle the recommendation and advice that this attorney provided to her, but it's just very, it's a sad telling of the system on how even when you as a practitioner believe, you know that the system won't and what the consequences are. And And why are we advising survivors to navigate the system rather than changing the system so that people can believe? Exactly. And I want to add to that, Terry, that victims are often in a position where they have to weigh the odds as to making a decision. Because let me tell you something, Terry, what could also happen and does happen often is if you allow the abuse to happen 
for a particular time. And an ACS investigation is initiated, you could lose your children to the system for not reporting that abuse at a particular time or as soon as it happened. Never mind that wherever you go, if you disclose that there was an incident of violence in front of your children, there will be a call place. Wasn't there a case, the Nicholson case, that made that illegal for child welfare to do that? Right, and it made uh, a failure to protect. And it made some differences that does not mean... That doesn't mean it's being enforced. Enforced or that children are still not being removed because of domestic violence. Okay, because if you don't follow the recommendations of ACS, and by the way, there are some a lot of new changes that we really need to look at. That's a whole nother segment, okay, in terms of how we're forcing victims of domestic violence into making decisions that they don't want to make, right? That is still, regardless, or I'm, I'm really happy that ACS is doing better, But our community doesn't feel that way. Community, ACS is still a threat and still have the reputation of removing our children because we blame, let's just say we blame mothers. Well, I think you're you're speaking to a really good point about um, a huge system, in this case, the child welfare system in New York, ACS is the Administration for Children's Services, and how there are some systemic limitations for them to even be able to acquire the knowledge and the skills that they need to look at these cases effectively. And I don't know if you know about this. I just learned this myself recently. But the members, uh, the caseworkers in ACS are part of a union that has very strict rules around their participation in training. And so... They, in theory, are not required to attend training because of their union rules. And in fact, training can be viewed as against union rules. And and so there have been lots of situations where I know people who have been in those trainings who are either conducting those trainings or witnessing other people, right? And there's just not a lot of... um, growth in them at all, not a lot of progress. And so if that that kind of administrative obstacle isn't addressed, how do we expect these people to know what they need to know to employ compassion and deal with survivors and children in an effective way? Right. And I, I mean, to some people, this might be ideal, but to work on your own stuff and to create a space that says, I am a protective child Work up, but I also witnessed domestic violence growing up. I was also in an abusive relationship because we're all partless and we all breathe the same air. I, I, I believe that there is not a woman that hasn't in some way experienced some type of control and or abuse. I really believe that. Well, under patriarchy, we are. <laughs> we all experience sexism. Right. right. We still make less money, right? Last I, I heard. Right. So so you're saying that one suggestion you have is for people, even when there are administrative obstacles, for them to 
prioritize their own development and their ability to be effective in their own roles, especially around women and children. Correct. And and if a woman says, I am a victim of domestic violence, that she won't lose her job. And I understand that now you can collect unemployment uh, if you're a victim of domestic violence. Or, or, or even better yet, if a man is battering at home, should he lose his job, what are we going to put in place, or how are we going to address? And I think that you're, you're right, Terry. I think patriarchy is, a, is an amazing conversation. Uh, patriarchy, hierarchy. I think that that needs to be addressed before you enter into a job or, or into a marriage. How does that concept show up in your work with the elders? Do they have a different, more, a wiser perspective, I hope? I don't, I don't know so much of, of a wiser perspective, but I think that getting back to your point that this happens across the board, I don't really know that, that it's any different than in any other culture. And then again, I do know that a grandmother is not going to call the police or file an order of protection on her son who's stealing her money, for example. That's okay. You know, oh, it's justified. He didn't do it this month. He only, he only took this much. He has a substance abuse problem. What about elder abuse when they're actually in a relationship with someone for many, many decades? Well, Fortunately or unfortunately, some of the things that I have seen is that it does slow down. It does so slow down because of mobility, because of illnesses, what have you. But I also witness broken souls who have never experienced one day of happiness in a marriage. 30, 40 years of trauma, of, of feeling worthless, of never feeling loved, and justifying, right? And sometimes even biblically, we are made to suffer, women. The uh, message is suffering is part of being a good Christian or a good woman, staying, being loyal. How do you navigate those conversations to help those survivors? You know, I always come from a um, compassionate place. And, and right now what I'm finding is relationships are very important with elders. Uh, one-on-one contact with elders is very important. And talking about the positive things uh, uh, about our culture and talking about what were the messages that they received growing up about what it is to be a wife and a mother. Are those effective conversations? They're very effective and they're welcomed. And they can, it's almost like like we say a light bulb goes on because I'm not there to tell them you should have left a long time ago. Or that I'm even sorry you survived and you did what you did with what you had at that time. What I'm saying is 
There's still time for you to create an environment of safety and love. What's the success rate when you actually get someone to that point? Are they able to leave? Do they have the means? Because it seems like there's a lot of financial consideration at that point, right? right. If they're and, if they're dependent on someone else still, or well, not. not also. It's not always about dependent. It's about stealing their social security checks. It's about being at the bank on the first and the third with them. It's about uh, uh, hiding your money. It's about. Uh, uh, taking your house under your nose and you don't even realize this, you, you know, signing papers that you don't even, you don't know what you're signing. So some of the things that I, I bring is education about your wills, about, about who can you tell this is happening? Who can you trust with this? How can you get direct deposit? Do you even, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that even bank tellers, uh, uh, to some degree, uh, uh, have some awareness about what are the signs. If, if, you know, if you see this person, you know, you see an elderly person at the bank and and you have a, a person over them, you know, every month, every month, and you see and you see something that doesn't feel right, well, something probably isn't right. And you can find a way of intervening with that or offering uh, you know, making contact with that person. I tell the elders, you know, uh, because, they, you know, elders, other people in general will talk about their neighbor and what they see. They welcome that. They see it and they will disclose that. This is my building. This happens. You know what? Here's a flyer. Here's a folder. When they're not looking, stick it under the door. Let them know that there's a lady that comes to the senior center every month that you can talk to that understands your culture, that's not going to blame you, that she's there and she's genuinely there for your safety. I create more safety plans for women who want to stay and and mothers who want to stay that don't want to put their sons in jail than I do, you know, go to the shelter, get an order of protection. And quite frankly, I told you earlier, I welcome those whenever. Those are very real, inclusive safety plans that includes what the abused person can do and is willing to do. Maria, you've spoken a lot about the importance of education and awareness and having a sense of purpose in your own healing as well as in the work that you do. Is there anything else that you want to share that has been instrumental in your healing process? Yeah, you know... Thank you again, Terry. You're right on point with everything that I want to share. I'm very excited about uh, bridging the gap, the generational gap um, around ageism, because as you know, ageism affects young women, but it also affects older women. And bridging that gap and bringing our stories uh, to um, help younger women and especially the advocates and the activists of tomorrow. I always say uh, the young people are tomorrow's caretakers. And really not to uh, disregard the wisdom of, of our elders um, in our community. And not just look at the wrinkles. Look beyond the wrinkles. Look beyond the fact that they talk a little slower than they might talk. But sit with that wisdom because there's so much there. 
And, and, and I think that the younger generation can enhance that and create powerful, radical systems of change. Not to mention the respect and the, the love that comes out of that. And, and I've done it. I, I, I've done that. I, I help organize a group of young women and, and baby boomers. That's actually something that I've heard lots of other nonprofits are experimenting with. You're working in an organization currently where you work, your organization works with young people and you work with the elder population. So basically creating opportunities for them to mix and to create relationships with one another. Well, I don't know if they're taking it to, I know I am. (laughs) I don't know if that's the goal. I know it's my goal. And are they really using that? knowledge and that opportunity in the way they should. Yeah, a lot of programs have uh, groups for young people, uh, but are they critically thinking about ageism and how we can bridge that gap so that we don't have abused elders? I don't know. So to close our conversation, you had mentioned earlier that you don't use the word survivor anymore to describe yourself. Tell me why that is. Thank you, because I'm living a very full life. I have, I've created a very safe domain. There's a lot of tranquility in my, in my small space. I will say this, Terry, and and this is something that I want to explore further. And I don't, I don't know if you want to call them consequences. I don't know what the right word is, but I do feel that the reason or, or an obstacle to having a partner in my life today is because of the consciousness that I have and I need in another partner. I will say that, that I'm very, I'm not willing to settle. I don't need the big diamond that doesn't show me how much, the size of a diamond does not determine how much a person loves me. But the arms that hold me and the safety that I feel, the emotional safety that I feel when someone is holding me and caring for me with as less of agenda as possible. Because we all have agendas, right? We all want certain things from people, right? But to be very conscious of that. I think that's a great place for us to close our conversation. Great advice to give to the young women of today with how they should define a healthy relationship and what they should look for. Thank you, thank Maria. You, thank you for the opportunity, Terry. It was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Music.